0: listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. You can keep your Bibles open to Luke 21 this morning. We're going to try to Walk through that text, parents. Thank you so much for um, just enduring on Family Worship Sunday. I know your kids are in here, and I'm going to do my best to take that into account, unless I get lost in the text somewhere this morning and forget the time. Um, it's great having the babies back from Africa. Thank y'all for going, uh, Mike, Lynn, and Kayla, um, spending your money, taking your time to um, to check on uh, our missionaries, our people that are there, and uh, we look forward to hearing from uh, from y'all. And what God was able to do through y'all And what God's doing there in Sekinani um, in Kenya So we, we rejoice in that We praise the Lord this morning um, um, Maybe you come in with mixed emotions like I do um, I knew April Gentry I know Ray Gentry Some of you have been to Deborah Gentry for counseling And um, their 38, 39 year old daughter passed away uh, Pastor's wife, three kids uh, Chris just prayed for them Um, and that's sobering when you get that word on a Sunday morning. Um, A beautiful young life gone, leaving three kids and a husband behind. I attended a funeral yesterday for a dear friend who loved the Lord, and um, it was a bittersweet time and saw a lot of old friends there. Um, Got word this week that my youngest son is going to be, he and his wife, expecting another child. Um, And then, so all these emotions are swirling around, and then we get uh, the word on the national front about uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And I just want to, first of all, rejoice, but I want to challenge you for a second. Um, uh, This is very divisive. My heart grieves. Um, My heart grieves that uh, unborn babies are slaughtered. My heart grieves that that, uh, there are those that On the pro life side that are exhibiting um, hatred, right? And uh, this competitive spirit. And there are certainly those on the pro choice side that um, are, you know, trying to do a lot of different things. Let, Let me tell you let us always stand for life. Life is sacred, life is a product of the union of a man and a woman that is, by the way, sacred and reserved for those who have committed themselves to each other in marriage. So when there is this lifelong commitment between this man and this woman, and they enjoy the blessings that God has given them, the gifts that God has given them, then, then children come into the world, and those children are, every child, all 60 million of the aborted children were gifts from God. But these are good gifts from a good and loving God. And maybe you don't know Him, and maybe you've been influenced by the powers of the world, And I want to tell you that Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth and died on the cross of Calvary, and he has paid for your sin. If you will trust him this morning, and I would encourage you to do that. No matter what's happened in your past, there is hope in Christ for your present and for your future. So let me give that to you this morning, the hope that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us so much that he came and laid down his life that we might have life. Let us rejoice, let us grieve, but let us realize that we have the responsibility of going into the marketplace and proclaiming the gospel. You see, the issue of abortion and the issue of the various sins that we rail on oftentimes in the church are products of lostness. All the voices that you hear in the culture that are coming across the TV uh, screens are voices that are just a parroting of Genesis 3. We will do what we want to do and be in control of our own lives, and that is the lie of the enemy. The voice of Christ says, come unto me, all you are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly, and that is found in Christ alone. And so our job is not to get on the Facebook and, and, and gloat about a Supreme Court decision Our job is not to uh, try to fight tooth and nail with people that disagree with us on that issue. In fact, our response should be if somebody slaps us on the right cheek to turn the left cheek. Our response should be to love our enemies and put the love of Christ on display. And our response should be to take the gospel to those who have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. So let that be our commitment in light of all that's happening around us. As we look at our text this morning, um, Jesus is fixing to go and die. He's fixing to go and die for his enemies. That's you and me, by the way. He's fixing to provide redemption for those who are lost and in sin and separated from God. But before he goes, he's giving his disciples a glimpse of the end. He's going to speak to them prophetically. And Chris has already read that text. And there are a couple of words I want to point out to you before we get into the text this morning. And there are words maybe that you hear a lot, maybe that you don't understand, maybe that you do. Maybe you know more about these words than I do. The first word is the word apocalyptic. What do you mean by apocalyptic? What do you mean when you talk about the apocalypse? The word uh, apocalyptic generally means basically just the unveiling. The unveiling of the end times. That's why we have the book of Revelation, the 66th book of the Bible, at the end of the Bible. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the unveiling of the end of time when Christ comes back. So Jesus is going to be speaking apocalyptically this morning. The text is an apocalyptic text that speaks of the end of time. The second word I want you to get excuse me, is this word eschatology, eschatology, where apocalyptic means an unveiling, eschatology is the study of the last times. And there are several different views, y'all excuse me, (coughs) there are several different views as it relates to how things are going to unfold in the last time. I'm going to tell you these three different categories, three predominant categories. There are other categories that you may be familiar with. I'm going to briefly touch on them because I want to tell you that if you're looking for a predominant eschatological perspective or last time's perspective or system that you want to fit what I'm going to say into, don't look for one. Don't waste your time looking for one because I do not want my eschatology to determine how I read the text. I want how I read the text to determine my eschatology. For example, the word generation is going to be mentioned in this text. Some people will say, well, since generation is mentioned in this text, that there would be people in this generation that would be around when Jesus comes back. And obviously those people are dead. This text cannot be speaking literally, but they didn't take the time. A very prominent theologian didn't take the time to consider what the different meanings of generation are in the text. He simply grabbed his eschatological system and laid it over the text and said, this is what the text means because that is the eschatological system that I believe in or the end time system that I believe in. There is a post-millennial eschatology. There is a premillennial historical and dispensational eschatology. That's where we get to talk about the rapture and those kinds of things. And then there is an amillennial eschatology. One would say that scripture is more literal. The premillennial perspective, the amillennial perspective would say that many of these things are symbolic and spiritual, but not literal. I'm probably going to mix all of that up this morning as I look at The text and try to share with you what I believe Jesus is trying to say to us this morning. Jesus is also delivering what's known as the Olivet Discourse. If you want to compare Luke 21 verses 5 to 38, You can compare it to Mark chapter 13. You can compare it to Matthew chapter 24 and 25. If you've grown up in church like I did, you've been to church, and at some point during the week, they're going to preach an end-time sermon, and they're probably going to preach from Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is preaching from the Mount of Olives. So just a little background into the text, some understanding. If you'd like to know more about Um, eschatology or uh, apocalyptic literature um, go talk to Luke Aiken. he can tell you all about it this morning so and I'm picking on Luke Luke didn't tell me to tell you to go see him but um, I'd rather somebody else talk about it besides me because it can get awfully confusing there there are three things that Jesus is looking at the text let me give you an overview before I give you an outline first of all from our perspective in verses 5 to 19 Jesus is looking at the past in other words Jesus is going to be talking about in the text The fall of the temple or the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem, and here's what I want you to understand this morning, all of that has already taken place. Verses 5 to 19 have already taken place in the past, historically, 70 AD, when Titus moved into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and killed what Josephus says was a million Jews. Other historians said it was a half million Jews and took 100,000 people and put them into captivity. But then when we move into verses 20 to 24, um, we we see in verses 5 to 19 the destruction of the temple. We see in verses 20 to 24 the destruction of Jerusalem. Again, all of that has already happened. When we come to verses 25 to 28, we go from looking at the past from our perspective to looking at the future. Here's what Luke is saying as he's looked back at the destruction of Jerusalem, but he looks at now looking forward, beginning in verse 25, all of this upheaval that's taken place and the Son of Man, a reference to uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that's talking about the Messiah. As he looks forward to the future, here's what I believe he is saying. Just as sure... As the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and just as sure as Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, it is just as certain that the Son of Man is coming back. But that is the future. That is the future. So we see the past from our perspective, the the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem. We see the future, verses 25 to 28, the Son of Man coming back. And then thirdly, we see the present. What is he telling them? Jesus is spending most of his time not answering their question. They ask a question in the text. When are these things going to happen? Jesus never gives them a direct answer. Jesus never gives them a date. All that Jesus does predominantly is tells them how to live until he comes back. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. There are things within the text that we find ourselves drawn into that lure us, that draw us away. But let us understand that he's telling us, listen, it's it's certainly about the past historically that's important. It's certainly about the future things that are going to happen. But how in the world am I supposed to live between now and then? And the text is going to point that out. Let me give you an outline for the text. First of all, we see this. Be prepared for the destruction of the temple, verses 5 19 we see several things in the text this morning number one we see in verse number five this admiration you can see that there and while some were speaking of the temple how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings Jesus tells them in verse 6 as for these things that you see the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down they're like teacher How can these things be? When is this going to happen? So we see this admiration for the temple. We've got to understand that the temple was was stunning in beauty and magnificence. It was probably one of the most, if not at this time, the most unique structure in the world. It was Herod's temple. Herod had remodeled it. Herod had beautified it. It was covered with gold. Donors were constantly giving money so that something new and ornate and beautiful and expensive could be added to the temple. This temple had literal and symbolic purpose. You've got to understand. You are sitting here with uh, these these Jewish individuals that have this great admiration for the temple, and this temple represents the, the the presence of God. Where is God? He's in the holy of holies. You want to meet with God? Go to the temple. That's where we get our idea of the sanctuary. Take your hat off in the sanctuary. God is in the sanctuary. We are in the presence of God. I'm not saying that's accurate, but, but these folks said, where is God? He's over here in the Holy of Hol- Holies. This is a representation of the presence of God and the power of God and a place where people would go to worship God. It's representative of the atonement for sin as they would take sacrifices and blood would be shed. It represents redemption and teaching and hope. This building... That their admiring represents the epicenter of their lives and the epicenter of their understanding of God. Talk about their spiritual life. It was important to them. Talk about how psychologically they were impacted by their spiritual life and physically how they were impacted by their spiritual life that revolved around this building, the temple. This is where their hope rested. So we've got to understand their admiration. They weren't just looking at it from an architectural Perspective. I think we can understand that a little better when we look at Nehemiah chapter 1. And Nehemiah gets word that the temple and the city and the walls have been flattened in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah breaks down and cries because that place was where the glory of God stood, rested. It was a powerful, powerful place. So we see this admiration, but Jesus then talks about this destruction the destruction of the temple. It was destroyed in 70 AD. There was a four-year, around a four-year siege, and finally in 70 AD, the Gentiles broke through and destroyed the temple. Now, this is important. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Jesus is sitting here talking to these, these disciples in 30 AD. In other words, he's making a prediction about what's going to happen to the temple in great detail 40 years before it happens. I'm not sure who you think Jesus Christ is, but I'm telling you, someone that can predict the future with the accuracy that he predicted it must have something going on inside of him that's a lot different than you and me. And I would suggest to you that Jesus Christ is none other than God, God's very Son, the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus, 40 years into the future, is saying, that not one stone will be left upon another. They're looking at these stones. Some of these stones weighed 100 tons. They're looking at the beauty. They're looking at the gold. They're looking at the extravagance. How could anyone destroy it? Why would anyone destroy it? Yet if you go there today, and I've been there, all you can go to is the wailing wall, which was the, the underpinning or a retaining wall for the western wall of this huge temple structure. That's all that's left. And you can see the massive stones that are there, and every stone literally was torn down. But now, here's what they thought because of the significance of the temple, and because Jesus saying, Not one stone's going to be left upon another stone, in their mind, they had to be thinking, If that happens, surely that is the end of the world. Surely that is the end of. Surely this is the apocalypse. When the temple, when the center of God's universe comes down, this has to be the end of human history. And so they question him. They're not questioning whether or not it's going to happen. They just want to know what the warning signs are. And if you're doubting that, Jesus clarifies it in verse nine. If you look at verse nine, he says, but the end will not be at once. So they're thinking, okay, the temple's going to be destroyed. The end is coming. When is the end coming? Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. The end is not coming at once. This is not the end. This is the end of the temple, but it's not the end of time. He's assuring them that the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem are not the ultimate end. In other words, here's how we look at prophecy. We look at prophecy through bifocals. Some of you know what bifocals are. I've got progressive lenses on, and I can look through the bottom of my lenses, and I can see up close, and I can look through the top of my lenses, and I can see the wrinkle on Pat Cogan's forehead back there. All of them. I can't count them. Okay? And so, and so you can see up close, and you can see far away. The text is giving us this up-close perspective as we look through one part of the lens, and then the, and prophecy does that constantly. Looking up close, what's happening up close, the temple is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Looking far away, the Son of Man is coming. The Redeemer is coming. Our redemption is going to be understood. Now, in between time, in between these two lenses that we're looking at, up close and far away, how do we live. So what does Jesus do? They ask a question and teacher, what are these things going to be? And Jesus then doesn't answer the question. He doesn't answer it. Jesus then tells them that they're going to run into a couple of issues and he begins to give them instruction. The the issues that they're going to run into, number one, is there's going to be deception. There's going to be a lot of people setting dates. There's going to be a lot of people saying, hey, I'm the Christ. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to try to develop these eschatological systems, these last time systems of thought, so that they can predict with some form of accuracy exactly when Jesus is coming back. And Jesus is not about that at all. He starts out, see that you're not led astray. See that you're not deceived. Don't don't fall for that. So he instructs them. Not only does he instruct them and tell them that there's going to be deception, he also instructs them and tells them there's going to be persecution. So beware of deceivers. And secondly, be prepared for persecution. Persecution. Verse 10, he tells them what was happening then and what will be happening all the way up to our time. And until the end, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes. There were earthquakes in 61 um, A.D. and in, in, in 63 A.D., Phrygia and Pompeii, we know that historically, you can read about that. But before all this, he said there's going to be great signs in the heavens, verse 12, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. So there's going to be deception and there's going to be persecution. They're going to deliver you into the synagogues and prisons. You're going to be brought before kings. You say, when did this happen? Read the book of Acts. Begin reading in Acts chapter 5. Look at Stephen who was stoned, who was killed. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. I'm going to give you the words to say you're going to be delivered. You're going to be hated. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be, um, you're going to be killed, executed. He says, but not a hair of your head will perish. And I believe he's going back to previous passages where he's essentially saying what ultimately matters your soul no matter what persecution no matter if you go to prison no matter if you suffer death no matter what they do to you the one thing that they can't touch is your soul because your soul is secure so ultimately you and i don't have anything to worry about if we are in christ and so he's telling us there's there's going to be speculation there's going to be sensationalism there's going to be deception there's going to be persecution there's going to be prison. There's going to be betrayal. There's going to be hatred. There's going to be death. There's going to be execution, but you ultimately are going to be preserved if you're in Christ. So rest in that hope. Basically from the text, what we've seen so far, and there are four ways that we should respond. Let me offer you some application to what we should be doing right now, and I'm not done. Number one, don't be led astray, right? Don't be led astray, Number two, he makes that that clear in verse 8. Do not be led astray. Do not go after them. Secondly, don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. He gives us that in verse number 9. Thirdly, don't miss the opportunity to witness. Don't miss the opportunity to witness. There there, there are going to be trials and difficulties, but trials and difficulties give extraordinary opportunity for evangelism. He says in verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And then he says, don't quit. Don't give up. So we see, first of all, be prepared for the destruction of the temple. But more importantly than than anything else is us knowing how to live in light of the return of Christ. How do we live now? You say, well, why was the temple destroyed? The temple had to be destroyed it was destroyed because of judgment jerusalem was destroyed because of judgment the text makes it clear verses 22 23 24 the words vengeance the words distress the words wrath are right there as clear as day the temple was also destroyed because there's no longer a need for a building that supposedly houses God. There's no longer a need for a building to go and take animals and sacrifice those animals as atonement for your sin because the perfect sacrifice has come. His name is Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for you and for me, and he said, It is finished. There is therefore no need for continued sacrifices. Jesus rose victorious over death, over sin, over the grave. And he is seated at the right hand of the father and he's waiting to come back. But let us understand that the temple is gone because the temple is no longer necessary because salvation has come in a person and a building is no longer needed. Secondly, Verses 20 to 24, be prepared for the fall of Jerusalem. Notice, notice the text, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem sound, surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. I, I'll just walk through what's happening historically here if you want to check me out historically. I, I love the fact that everything that's in the text of Scripture can be backed up historically. I, I have great confidence in God's Word. It can also be backed up archaeologically. You can go do archaeologically. You can look for any way to, his, uh, to establish the, the truth, the historicity of Christ and the claims that he makes, and it's all com- completely um, accurate. And, and that should give us great comfort today as we look at Um, what is happening but the details are given to us here in scripture and i think that is amazing first of all jerusalem will be surrounded by armies that took place over a four-year period of time there was a jewish revolt in 66 a.d and then in 67 a.d vespian came to jerusalem and he began to capture cities around jerusalem by 67 a.d he had captured um, many of the cities in northern palestine they were under gentile control by 68 a.d bespian had established a ring of military outposts around jerusalem but in 68 a.d he heard of nero's death and so from 68 to 69 A.D. From the summer of 68 A.D. to the summer of 69 A.D., there wasn't a whole lot of activity that was going going on in this siege of Jerusalem. But in 69 A.D., in June of 69 A.D., Vespian reasserted military pressure around Jerusalem and had significant control. But also in 69 A.D., in July, Vespian was declared the emperor, and so he put his son Titus. In charge of all of these military activities as they were trying to go in and overthrow these revolting Jews in Jerusalem. Titus arrived a few days before Passover in 70 AD and brutalized the Jewish people for five months and decimated their will. He surrounded the city with a stone wall and put guards on that wall and nothing entered the city. No resources could enter the city and no suffering individual could exit the city. And in August of 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. That's the history of it. You can study that in the the writings of Josephus and others. But if you look at verse 21, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let those who are out in the country uh, who are out and, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. Don't go into the city. If you're in the city, get out of the city. And and he's basically saying get out of Jerusalem and don't go back. And historians have told us that the early church heeded the warnings of Christ and left the city and found itself residence in uh, an area called Pella. And it was there that the church was able to. Survive as early as 66 AD, significant numbers of Jews began leaving Jerusalem. And we've got to stop for a minute and look at some gospel application here because it is a good God, a loving God, a gracious God who would stand before us and say, Destruction is coming, judgment is coming, escape the coming wrath, escape death, escape judgment. Get out while you can. He sent me here in his stead to say to you, if you're in sin, sin is not your friend. Get out while you can. If you're in death, death is not your friend. If you're in the destruction and the throes of Satan's lies and vices, there is not life to be found there. It is a loving Savior who comes and says, you were created to be in relationship with me. You were created to be in fellowship with me. Get out of sin. Get out of destruction. Come and find life in me. What a gracious God. He cries out to you. He cries out to me. This morning, verses 22 and 23 essentially is the consequence of sin. He says, For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. The, the, the Jewish nation was told, If you follow and if you obey, there will be life. But if you don't, there will be judgment. We're reminded... When Jesus was taken before Pilate, Pilate transferred him over to Herod. Everybody's passing him around like he's a hot potato. Pilate received him again, and Pilate didn't want anything to do with him because of a dream that his wife had. And so Pilate says, I'm going to turn Jesus loose. You can check it out in Matthew 27. I'm going to release Jesus. Um, And they're like, no, 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 don't release Jesus. Give us Barabbas. What should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him crucify him, the high priest, crucify him, the leaders of Israel, crucify him. They said, let his blood be upon us and our children. Let his blood be upon us and our children. And so when we look at verse 23, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that that is written he gives us some details that i won't go into alas for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days for there will be great distress on the earth history tells us that these folks were literally eating dirt in hopes of surviving cannibalism was was actually occurring inside the walls they were doing the best that they could to survive There will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword. I've already mentioned some historians said a million people. And be led captive among the nations. Some have estimated that there were 100,000 people who were taken captive. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Pick a view on that. Jerusalem had no Jews in it at this point. Jerusalem was destroyed. So be prepared. Be prepared for the destruction of the temple. Be prepared for the fall of Jerusalem. Those are things that have happened in the past. Thirdly, be prepared... For the Son of Man to be revealed to the world. We're looking looking through the bottom of the bifocals and we're seeing up close. And now we're looking through the top of the the prophetic bifocals and we're looking far off. The Son of Man is coming back. There are going to be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth distress of nations, plural and perplexity. So we move from Jerusalem to nations and because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding for what is coming on the world. In other words, the world's going to be in such a mess, and everybody on the face of the planet is going to be in great distress because things are seemingly out of control. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. What in the world is going on? This is, by the way, something that is literally in my mind. Listen, if the fall of Jerusalem was literal and historical it was, then then I believe that the Son of Man coming is is literal. I believe what he's talking about are literal events, events, catastrophic events, apocalyptic events that are going to be taking place before Christ comes back and the world is going to find itself in a hopeless condition. But then all of a sudden we're going to see... The son of man and verse 27 says, and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Not unlike Philippians chapter two, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father. He's quoting Daniel chapter seven in verse number 13, basically what we see in this text is the ultimate and victorious deliverer at the end of the world. We see the apocalyptic distress of the world, but we see this ultimate and victorious deliverer coming to finally put the bow on redemption, complete our redemption when we see Christ. He says, now these things begin to take place. Straighten up and raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. I have been saved and my redemption is secure, but I have not fully experienced it. But when Christ comes back, we are going to experience the fullness of our redemption. Daniel chapter 7, just briefly covering that. What what is this son of man? He is like the son of man, Daniel says. He's a human figure compared to beast. He is a divine figure to be worshipped and served. And he is given the kingdom and he will rule. This is the deliverer that is coming to soothe and redeem a distraught people. A lot's going on in the world today. A lot is going to be happening in the future. But if we're rightly related to Christ... We should be in a relationship with him that no matter what's going on around us, we are, we, are, we are soothed, we are comforted, we find peace, we find joy. So how should we then live beginning in verse 28? Let me, let me give you several uh, doctrinal points that we can point out. First of all, we understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We see the deity of Jesus Christ. We also see the power of prophecy. If, if, you, if, you, put, uh, the, if you put prophecy um, to mathematical precision, it is absolutely astounding to see the things that have been prophesied and how they have already come to pass. We see the power, see, power of prophecy. We see the accuracy and authority of Scripture given to us right here before us as we look at this text. We see the danger of distraction. It's easy to get distracted while we wait for Christ to come. We see the certainty of destruction apart from Jesus Christ. We see the glorious hope that transcends the challenges of this world. And we see the love and grace of a compassionate Savior who longs for us, who died for us, who is coming back so that we can be with Him, that we can connect with Him. We can connect with the very thing that our heart longs to connect with, which is to be in restored to relationship with Him that was lost in the fall. And so there's so much packed into um, this text. But verses 28 to 38, what is he saying? First of all, we should live in anticipation of the completeness of our redemption. Our redemption is complete in Christ. Look for the return of Jesus Christ. Because when Christ returns, our redemption will be complete. Order your life in the present in anticipation of Christ's return in the future. He's coming back. Now, it's going to seem like he's not. It's going to seem like he doesn't exist. It's going to seem like he's out of control. It's going to seem like the world is one. It feels like that. But but the text is telling us our redemption is drawing near. It's nearer than we could even begin to imagine, and our redemption will be fully realized when Christ returns. Secondly, know that you can know when the time is near. Jesus is asking the question, answering their question now, you will see indicators on a worldwide scale. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is near. There are going to be things that indicate to the believer that the kingdom is near, so we can know. Thirdly, when we get to this word, if you if you look um, look at verse thirty-one. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. What in the world does that mean? Here's what that means. The wicked will thrive up to this point, and when the end comes, they will be eliminated. Where do you get that from? The word generation means a group of people or can mean a group of people characterized by the same spiritual condition. We see it in Luke chapter 11. We see it throughout scripture. A generation is characterized as a group of people that are characterized by the same spiritual condition. Here's what one writer said. This generation carries with it a perjurative twist and results not simply to people within a 30 to 40 year time block, but those who have been, are, and will be light rejecting, kingdom opposing, Messiah spurning people. The phrase refers to a type of people, not primarily to their time. He said, this generation is not going to pass away. This generation is not going to pass away until the end. But in the end, those that are light rejecting, kingdom-opposing, messiah-spurning people, while they may be flexing their muscles, and they may be, they may be dominating the newsfeed, and, and they may be occupying our voices, and we're listening to them, and they sound reasonable, but they really don't if you can reason. They really don't. They really don't if you know Scripture. They really don't if you have a relationship with Christ. But it all sounds so overpowering. They are going to be with us. This generation will not pass away. There is going to be wickedness. There is going to be a constant challenge to the Scripture. There's there's constantly going to be sin that abounds all around us. It's not going to pass away. Until Christ comes back. And, And then, and then... Christ rejecting people who, will, who remain will in no way escape the judgment of the Son of Man. Evil seems to be dominating the earth like the temple seems to me be, be unmovable. Heaven is functioning in mathematical precision. Notice, notice what he says. I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away. What's happening on the earth is going to pass away. Heaven is going to pass away. This sinful generation that is shaking their fist in the face of God, Psalm chapter 2, is going to pass away. But my words will not pass away. Your redemption is near. Trust the promises of God, when it feels hopeless, when you go back over to verse 19, verse 18, verse 17, when they're, they're imprisoning you, when they're killing you, when they're, they're uh, doing harm to you and to me, when we feel like when we're in the minority, God's word will stand. And we need to trust the promises of God. We need to trust God's word about the future. But then he goes on, verse 34. Pay close attention to yourselves. Don't be deceived or lax or careless with your spiritual life in your eager anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. There is the deception of drunkenness and dissipation. There is this, this temptation to fall into a spiritual lull, to be intoxicated with the world and its pleasure. But he also mentions in the text the cares of this life, the deception of the cares Of this life, but watch yourselves, lest you, lest your, your hearts, your hearts, be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. It's a great place to stop and say, "What's going on in your heart? What's weighing your heart down? What's dominating your heart? Are the cares of this world?" dominating your heart. My wife was telling me last week, she was in Colorado at Matthew's church, and she never remembers anything I say when I preach, but she remembered what his pastor said last week. And he talked about the, how busyness has become a virtue, right? I'm so busy, how, how virtuous it must be. We, we, our hearts, our hearts get enraptured with the pleasures of this world and our hearts get enraptured with the busyness of this world, the virtue of just being busy and entrapped in this world. And he's like, no, don't fall for these things because that day will suddenly come upon you for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Folks, listen, if you believe in Christ, if you have believed the gospel, it is not going to be easy. No doubt, no doubt, when deception comes, many are going to run off with the deceivers. No doubt, when persecution comes, we're going to at least be cut in half, maybe a third. Maybe down to 10%. We're going to get out of here. We're going to get out of here. It's not going to be easy. So we need to pray. We need strength that is not our own. So that when the Son of Man comes, we will be left standing before Him. And relating to Him. And loving Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We should be living now. As though we are looking forward to that time When he comes And then verses 37 and 38 Every day he was teaching in the temple But at night he went out And lodged on the mount called Olivet And early in the morning all the people came To him in the temple To hear him And Jesus is looking forward To his death I've tried to unfold the text We're looking at The unveiling We're looking at the last times, and we're looking at how we need to live until that time comes. I think the question that you need to answer this morning is, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Has there been a time when you've come face to face with the fact that you are separated from a holy God, that you're a part of that generation, that when he comes back, you are ultimately going to be destroyed? Now, you may be with a great crowd of people right now that are just flexing their muscles, and and the church looks like a bunch of idiots, but there's coming a day when the Son of Man comes back, and and he's going to make things right. But more than that, the, the, the life that you've been looking for, the love that you've been looking for, the relationship that you've been looking for, the purpose that you've been looking for are all found in Christ and Christ alone. And if you don't know him, I would, I would beg you, I would beg you as we sang this morning to surrender your life to him today. Surrender your life to him today. You say, oh man, I've got that, I've got that. If you're a believer, would you ask yourself just what tentacles the world has on your heart? What what connections do you have to the world that every time you try to lunge forward to Christ, you're pulled back? Every time you try to order your life around the return of Christ, you're pulled back like something's attached to you. This world will set its hooks in our hearts heart if we aren't careful that's why he's warning these people in this text so i would challenge you to examine your heart this morning and i would challenge you to live between what's already happened in the past and what's going to be happening in the future for christ and christ alone and making him known to those around us. that's the challenge in the moment that we live in a great opportunity in difficult times to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just the clarity of your word. Thank you for proving your strength, proving your word to be so powerful and true, your prophetic word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the ultimate redemption that awaits us when you come back. And Lord, I I pray now in these days that we would be developing a relationship with you as believers, that we would be walking with you, that we would be reading your word, that we would be praying, that we would be resting in who you say we are so that when you come back, we won't be scared. So that when you come back, we won't be shocked. But so that when you come back, our hearts will be be filled with such joy. Because there is nothing here on this earth that ultimately brings us joy. There's nothing here on this earth that ultimately brings us peace. And so I pray that until you come back, we would live in preparation for your return. And for those in the room that don't know you, I pray today that they would surrender to you, that they would surrender to your grace, that they would surrender to your love, that they would surrender to your forgiveness, that they would surrender to your mercy, that they would surrender to the escape plan that you have provided for them through your death, your burial, and your resurrection. Lord, help us as we navigate when we leave this place, the world that we go out into. I pray that we'd be faithful. I pray that we would honor you. And I pray that we would witness accurately and lovingly to those around us. And bless us now as we remember you symbolically through um, the meal that you have provided. I pray for those that have sinned that they would be repentant, I pray, Lord, for those of us that are looking forward to your return. I pray that this would just be a foretaste of that experience. Bless us now as we enjoy partaking today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.